Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. We all live the vast majority of our lives on land, but we miss that huge portions of our life are shaped by connections across the oceans. My name is Bruce Jones. I'm the author of To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. Something in the order of 85% of all world trade moves by sea. Two-thirds of the world's energy is either found at sea or moves by sea. We live our entire lives connected to our smartphones and our bank cards and the internet, and we either ignore or simply don't know that 93% of all data worldwide moves on undersea cables that line the ocean floor. It's the lifeblood of our economy, uh, of our technology, it's the literal weather vane of a changing climate. Every part of our life is shaped by dynamics on the world's oceans. I think that this contest for dominance of the high seas will be a defining feature of geopolitics in the, for the decades to come. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth, and now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. Things are changing very, very quickly. Some of those risks are cascading. The potential is absolutely there for a hot conflict, for a new great game to transpire. Let's face it, even the guys at the last night of the proms know that they're singing that number with some pretty heavy irony these days. But it turns out that, in some respects, the world of the 1740s might not be very different to the 2020s. The oceans are still the key to global trade, and the next few decades will see climate change open new fronts in the struggle for their control. This is Doomsday Watch, Polar Wars. So in August 2007, two submersibles descended to the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. And it's a, it's a deep ocean. So you're talking about, you know, 12, 13,000 feet. And one of the submersibles gently deposited a titanium flag on the bottom of that ocean floor. And it's a Russian flag. And of course, what made the incident noteworthy was that it was photographed. 
And once that photograph travelled around the world and media picked up on it, there was a new scramble for the poles. You know, Russia was claiming the whole of the Arctic Ocean. That's Klaus Dodds, professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway University and an expert on the polar regions. Now, unsurprisingly, this, of course, alarmed other countries like Canada, you know, who sort of said, well, you can't go round dropping flags into the ocean, claiming it all for yourself. And it did look and feel like a sort of Christopher Columbus moment. But the reality was that it was, it was a wonderful spectacle that absolutely electrified the world at that point in terms of whether there was going to be a new struggle for, for territory, but actually didn't really amount to very much in international legal terms. But looking back on it, actually, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it did signal something really quite important. It coincided with President Putin taking a far harsher view of Russia's place in the world. And I think, alongside a number of other things, it marked a turning point where Russia was absolutely determined to be a great power on the move and a renewed determination to ensure that the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation was going to be as big and secure as possible. Planting a Russian flag underwater with a special submarine, it does sound a bit like one of those silly publicity stunts that they used to do before they got too busy committing war crimes in Ukraine. Is this stuff for real? Does it really matter in a world defined by hard power? This is where climate change comes in. The geography of the polar regions, and especially the Arctic, is going to change fundamentally, not in some distant time frame, but in the next couple of decades. And in that context, Russia's flag planting in the Arctic Ocean doesn't seem quite so crazy, because melting ice will upend the geography of the high Arctic. Hello, so I'm Emily Shukbra. I'm the director of Cambridge Zero at the University of Cambridge, which is the University of Cambridge's uh, climate initiative, um, spanning all the research and education, broader impact that the university has to accelerate our response to climate change. Before that, I spent a decade working at the British Antarctic Survey as a climate scientist. I had in that role a really great privilege of spending time in both the Antarctic and the Arctic. And one of the things that those trips really highlighted to me was the scale of change that's occurring in the polar regions. For me, the biggest impact was actually going to the Arctic, to the Canadian Arctic. And the reason for that is because people live in the Canadian Arctic. Nobody but scientists live in the Antarctic. And so there are people who are witness to the changes. And there's something about bringing together the scientific data on what's occurring with the personal testimonies of the people who are living those changes. And I remember to this day speaking to some of the um, people who lived in Ikhalowicz, which was the, the city I was visiting, and them telling me how perturbed they were at the, at the changes. And it was small things. It was the fact that they were now able to hear robins singing from the roofs of their, of their houses when they wouldn't ever have normally had robins that far north, or the fish that they were 
um, catching in the Hudson Bay were simply not the types of fish that they would previously have fished. And it was those small changes. And I remember one of the people that I was talking to said to me that it was like a friend who was suddenly acting strangely. So if that friend is a vast ocean ice sheet that has been there for all of recorded human history, what does acting strangely actually mean? Ben Saunders is one of only three people ever to have walked alone to the North and South Poles. I talked to him about his first expedition to the Arctic in 2001. Ben, what was the sea ice cover like at that time? That's a very good question. So, yeah, gosh, I was 23 years old at the time, and this was in in at the deep end with a a chap called Penn Haddo, Penn with a P, and we were trying to walk over the frozen or semi-frozen surface of the Arctic Ocean because the North Pole, geographic North Pole, that's in the middle of the sea, and it's a pretty big bit of sea. It's about 5.4 million square miles, so very roughly the same size as the United States. And uh, m- most of the time, it's it's mostly covered in floating pack ice. So there are no maps, um, and you're literally trying to walk, drag your sledge on the skis, um, travel true north uh, over the semi-frozen surface of the sea. So we were dropped by um, a, a pretty ropey old Russian MI8 helicopter on the northernmost tip of the northernmost island called Cape Arktichevsky. And um, and we were essentially able to walk from the beach onto the sea. And and off we went. Now, we didn't get to the North Pole. We, we got about two-thirds of the way there. Essentially ran out of time. It, even then, there was a very definite time window. And beyond a certain cutoff point, and it was, I forget the exact date, but it was sort of early May, which now would be ludicrous. But back then, that was the, the sort of sensible cutoff. And how does that compare with what you might see in 2022? So interesting, I, I went back to exactly the same spot uh, in 2004, three years later. And there, there was quite a bit of open water, like 20 kilometers of open water. So I started from the edge of the pack ice. That's what I was dropped off. And I, I made it to the North Pole that year, 2004. A few people said, well, it doesn't count. You didn't start from land. Well, it's not a proper expedition. You, you cheated. You, I mean, it was a thousand kilometers I covered. So, but you, you skipped the first. 15, 20, whatever. And, and other people said, well, it's a freak year. You know, the ice will be back. And, and nobody's repeated that journey. So 2004, um, I skied solo to the North Pole from Russia. No one's done that since. There's just every year consistently less and less pack ice. So the key number is, is the, the volume of, of ice. And that has gone down. We know pretty accurately um, the summer minimum. So, so the, the least amount of ice in the summer before it starts freezing again. Um, that's gone from about 16,000 cubic kilometers um, 40 odd years ago to less than 4,000 today. So we've we've lost three quarters of the Arctic Ocean's volume of pack ice within my lifetime. So things up there are, are changing very, very quickly indeed. For at least 10,000 years, possibly much longer, there has been a permanent ice cap at the top of the world, the frozen Arctic Ocean. It gets smaller in summer, but it's always been there. But this ice cap is now shrinking at breakneck speed. The latest modelling by Met Office supercomputers suggests that there might be no summer ice at all by 2035. In the mid-80s, the summer minimum was nearly as big as Australia, a huge floating island of ice. Fifty years later, this vast island will have disappeared. It's an ecological disaster. 
but it represents a geopolitical opportunity for the countries of the Arctic. A new stretch of ocean will open to navigation, and the Russians in particular have plans to take advantage. I asked Klaus to give us a feel for the significance of this change. So Fridrik Nansen, the great Norwegian polar explorer, was the the first uh, person to successfully traverse the fabled Northwest Passage. And prior to that point, there had indeed been four to five centuries of mainly European endeavour. And the appeal of the Northwest Passage was the idea, straightforwardly put, that this was the way of getting from Europe to Asia. Uh, and at that stage, of course, it's, it's worth noting that we didn't have a Panama Canal. That comes later. So it's all about, you know, cost saving, trying to reduce sailing time uh, in the pursuit of new markets and new treasures. What are the time frames that we're talking about? At what point does a normal cargo ship, rather than some kind of specialist icebreaker, become usable in the Arctic Ocean? So it's probably helpful just to sort of outline the three main maritime passageways. Two are relatively well established, and the third is more a a work in progress. So the most important by far is the Northern Sea Route, sometimes called the Northeast Passage. And that effectively is the, the route that runs along the northern coastline of the Russian Federation. Um, it's really been a mainstay of the uh, Russian economy and then prior to that, the Soviet economy from the 1920s and 1930s onwards. The second one we talked about just a moment ago, the Northwest Passage, that's less well-developed, commercially speaking, and that's largely because the sea ice conditions are more challenging. One of the qualities that the Northern Sea Route has is that actually sea ice tends to be Um, a little bit less of an issue compared to the Northwest Passage. Now, the final one, which is the one arguably that has excited uh, a great many people, is called the Transpolar Route. And that's the one that would effectively run through the Central Arctic Ocean. And predictions uh, aside, we think that this might become a more usable option any time from the 2030s, 2040s onwards in the summer season. And that will have all kinds of interesting ramifications. We see an increased interest from from many nations uh, up here. Since the Arctic ice is melting, we see new trade routes coming up potentially. Uh, A lot of nations become interested in in this um, area. What we've seen is a return of geopolitical tension in the in the Arctic for several reasons. We're seeing the opening up of the fabled Northern Sea Route. The Royal Navy searched for a half century for the Northern Sea Route, but of course in those days it didn't exist. Now it does. Uh, it's not there all year round yet, but it soon will be. And that's a major change for trade routes, especially coming out of Asia and into Europe uh, and the East Coast of the United States, it cuts the trade routes by about half. Uh, At the same time, there's a huge boon for fisheries as melting sea ice is making the water colder. That's very, that's generating a huge increase in fishing stocks. And the changing 
patterns, the sea ice are also enabling energy exploration. The largest natural gas find in the world of late was in the Yamal Peninsula off Russia's coast in the Arctic. So the Arctic is becoming this huge resource boon. It's also becoming a zone of really substantial military buildup. Arctic, less than 1,400 kilometers from the North Pole, lies the village of Barentsburg. Sitting on Norway's Svalbard archipelago, Russian flags and this bust of communist revolutionary Lenin may appear out of place, but there's more to the display of Soviet heritage than meets the eye. Back in 2018, I traveled through Svalbard, a Norwegian-administered island 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle. One of the oddities of Svalbard is that, under a historic treaty, all signatories have the right to exploit its natural resources. But most countries don't bother. It's an inhospitable, desperately difficult place to operate. The Russians, on the other hand, have had a permanent presence there since the 1930s in a bleak settlement called Barentsburg, where they operate a coal mine. Having seen the Russian consulate there, a huge building bristling with communications equipment in a place where only a few hundred Russian citizens live, mining coal that nobody needs, you end up wondering, why are they really there? I'm pretty sure it's not for the coal. The Arctic is a place of contested sovereignties, jostling for position and advantage in an environment most of us have no idea about. If you're taking the sort of the view from Moscow, if we start from that, and you're President Putin, and you're thinking about the Russian Federation. Now, as we know, and, and this, of course, has been heightened further by the invasion of Ukraine, you know that the future of the Federation rests fundamentally with natural resource development and exploitation. Now, the other thing that's happened as a consequence of sanctions is that Russia has turned decisively towards the south and the east to countries like China and India. So the Northern Sea Route is a crucial artery for Russian ambition in terms of developing the Russian North and making sure that that provides, if you like, the backbone for the Russian economy going forward. Now, there's the, the route across the North Pole, the Central Arctic Ocean, although it's a work in progress, what it might mean in future is that operators, you know, in places like China or Japan or South Korea or, you know, wherever, might think, well, hang on a minute, why would we use the Northern Sea Route that costs us a lot of money, we need Russian icebreaker support, if we can just go, you know, over the top of the Arctic Ocean, so to say, through the North Pole? You mentioned China there, and, and the Russia-China relationship is, is so fascinating, not least because uh, Russia has deepened and thickened its relations with China. So is China uh, seeking to increase its own ability to be a sort of strategic player in the Arctic region? Unquestionably. China thinks of itself as not just a great power, as, as we all know and understand, but crucially a great polar power. So to give you one example, China is a major producer of permafrost scientific knowledge. And that's in large part, of course, that permafrost is 
part and parcel of the Chinese landscape, particularly, of course, uh, in the sort of Tibet region of the country. China is a major investor in polar infrastructure, including, of course, icebreakers such as the Snow Dragon. And interestingly, the Snow Dragon has conducted a number of voyages in the Central Arctic Ocean. Now, why does that matter? Well, because in part, the Central Arctic Ocean is international waters. With that being the case, we haven't talked enough really about some of the other polar nations, particularly Canada and the US, both with a difficult, one might say almost hostile relationship with both Russia and China. Yeah, I mean, let's also be fair here when we when we talk about the Arctic states. Let me just run through that because then I yes, think it, please helps, do. it really yeah. sort of helps explain what I'm about to say next. So the eight Arctic states are Canada, the United States through Alaska, Russia, Iceland, Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark via Greenland. Three of the Arctic states are not considered Arctic Ocean coastal states. So that's Iceland, Sweden, and Finland. Now, the other five are. And when it comes to the Arctic Ocean, via, of course, the United Nations Law of the Sea Convention, there are procedures, frameworks in place where Arctic states can quite legally seek to extend their sovereign rights over the seabed. So, you know, whilst we often focus on the Russia as being exceptional, I think it's fair to say that all the Arctic states jealously guard their sovereignty and are as eager as any any of the others to extend their sovereign rights. So I suppose then the, the inevitable next question is, does that set the stage for some sort of future conflict? It may not be military conflict, but certainly a sort of great game in which the countries, particularly the larger players, seek to exert a greater control over this area uh, compared with some of the weaker players. If Finland and Sweden join NATO, that means that seven Arctic states are NATO members and one isn't. The problem we have is the one that is not, aka Russia, represents over 50% of the Arctic region. So whatever happens, Russia will continue to matter. Let's also remind ourselves of the kind of problems Russia will have going into the next decade or two. So Russia's Arctic is depopulating. Russia is going to face increasingly a very large bill for ongoing Arctic warming. And that means Russia is going to be very dependent on external parties like China or India um, so will we see more of that? Because it becomes a, a place, as you mentioned earlier, for a kind of new great game to transpire. The Arctic is becoming a zone of really substantial military buildup. We've seen a prior to Ukraine, at least, we saw a big buildup of Russian forces. We've seen the return of American nuclear submarines to the Arctic for the first time since the end of the Cold War. We've seen uh, American and Western Marines stationed in northern Norway to keep a watchful eye on the Russians. We've seen 
the U.S. and India trained together there to prepare for high-altitude cold fighting. We see the Chinese deploying a huge number of scientific ships. They're scientific ships, but they are dual-purpose. And so we've seen a, a huge investment in strategic positioning as well as economic positioning around the Arctic, and it's highly likely to be one of the zones of contest between the major powers in the years to come. These soldiers are putting their winter warfare skills to the test. More units of these specialized cold weather troops are set to be created as Sweden hikes its defense spending and as winter combat skills become more valuable in the strategic high north and abroad. The potential is absolutely there for a hot conflict where we look at the ability to attack different militaries, infrastructure, their command systems. The Northern Fleet, the head of the Russian nuclear arsenal, is in the Arctic. Uh, you know, these are all targets with a conflict with NATO and, and Russia or China in the Arctic. It's so contested because there's so many competing actors and the territory is completely subjected to individual claims of territory. Uh, and the fact that it's, it's a NATO space. So the, the, the ability for that to slide into uh, an uncontrollable conflict, the potential is absolutely there. I'm Robert Clark. I'm the Director of Defence and Security at Civitas, a uh, think tank in Westminster. When we wrote the report, the next front it was obviously only a few months after the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine in the in the February, obviously. Um, now, whilst the world's attention was understandably on Eastern Europe, we were still very much aware that the issues in the Arctic, these are going to come to a head in, in the coming years. Now, the convergence of Chinese and Russian military activity has actually been seen in the Arctic only in September. Uh, we had, uh, I think it was seven, a uh, flotilla of seven uh, Russian and Chinese warships, I think four Russian, three Chinese, including destroyers, just off the Alaskan coast uh, within the Arctic Circle. Rob's report describes increasing crowding of maritime and military powers and Russia's desire to exploit the natural resources in the Arctic, which the Kremlin estimates to be worth more than $30 trillion. He warns of a coming clash, NATO countries on one side, Russia and China on the other. The Arctic has been a relatively stable geopolitical environment for the last 30 years. And that's in no small part due to the fact that the majority of the states who are uh, NATO members managed to deal with these contested spaces in a very amicable and, uh, you know, political manner. Russia and China have no respect for these mechanisms. They have no respect for international law and international norms. We see this on a daily basis. So it's, it's an incredibly fragile, unstable, contested very, very lucrative and important strategic location. So, Rob, what's the nature of this military build-up? What have they actually got up there? Russia's entire nuclear arsenal is based in the uh, the Russian Northern Fleet, which is up in the north of Murmansk, which is within the Arctic Circle. Um, so when we talk about uh, Russia's and President Putin's uh, nuclear threats uh, to Ukraine and to NATO... Uh, these are directed from within the Arctic itself. So straight away, we're nuclearizing and militarizing the Arctic in a way that hasn't really been seen since the Cold War. Russia is a legitimate Arctic power. Uh, 50% of the Arctic coastline is within Russia's territory. So they have a legitimate claim to deploy their military on their own area, their own territory, but it's how they do so and the speed with which they've built up their military 
uh, assets, if you like, in, in the Arctic in the last few years. So uh, the last decade, there's been around 50 Soviet-era bases, which have been regenerated, uh, expanded, and reinforced. In a way, the surprise package here is China. They have no territorial or even historic connection to the Arctic region. But don't forget what Bruce Jones told us right at the beginning. Control of the high seas is one of the key strategic factors of any age. And the Arctic is, thanks to climate change, effectively a new ocean that China wants to control. Now, where we can see how China uh, bend the rules, uh, to put it lightly, uh, and shape existing geopolitical structures in their favour. For this, we look at the South China Sea. They have no respect for their neighbours' exclusive economic zones with regards to fishing rights and building up artificial islands in the South China Sea. So there we can see how China distort the rules and bend the practices to suit their geopolitical uh, ambitions. Uh, this is a long-term shift, and this is why uh, this is really the Arctic is the next front. Uh, we must look hard facts quite clear in the face, I'm afraid. The world is changing. The global order is changing. And the ability to really take stock and take ownership of this. It's a it's a long-term failing of the West, to be perfectly honest. Uh, China and Russia, uh, they don't have changes of government every four or five years or, or every 45 days. So they can plan incredibly long-term. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not advocating for an authoritarian system, but in a, in a geopolitical contest, which we are in, like it or not, uh, it is a weakness. And we need to overcome that weakness with the ability to think much longer term. So far, we've focused on the geopolitics of this climate crisis. But we shouldn't forget the ecology. We're talking about some of the last great wilderness regions of the Earth. Just to think of one of the most recognisable species, the polar bear, its habitat is the frozen Arctic Ocean. Bears born today, in December 2022, will live to see the end of that habitat less than 20 years from now. I spoke to Emily Shuckborough about her trips to the polar regions and what she experienced in these unique places. I think the thing that I most remember, well, probably two things. It's the light is incredible. Um, there's always beautiful colours in the sky, e either if you're lucky enough to get to see the northern lights or the, or the southern lights, but also just the way that the light reflects off the, of the snow and the sea ice is spectacular. But the other side is the sound of sea ice moving. And it makes this incredible sort of tinkling noise. You know, it's all your senses that come together in ways that you just don't experience anywhere else. It is a huge privilege to go to Antarctica, but it's also completely awe-inspiring, as you might imagine. Um, the scale and the magnitude, the vastness of the you know, relatively unexplored wilderness, pristine wilderness, is just incredible. And really, it's impossible for both the physical environment and also the nature 
not make a dramatic impact on you. But at the same time, it is part of the world that is changing the most rapidly in the face of climate change. And colleagues of mine who've been back year after year will tell you they can visibly see the difference um, in the landscape as a consequence of the changes that are occurring. One person who has made repeated trips to the Antarctic is my explorer friend, Ben Saunders. There are either two or three of us in history that have walked south by poles. Um, there's a, a Norwegian that's definitely, definitely done it. So yeah, and there's a, there's a mystery Russian in the 1990s, so before GPS. So depending on his degree of trustworthiness, there, there are two or three of us. So it's a small, small club, but it, I, I'm not the, the only one in it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the sort of latter, gosh, decade or so of my career was mostly focused on, on Antarctica. And, and a- Antarctica is vast. This place is the size of China and India put together. It's nearly two Australias. It's almost 10% of the Earth's entire landmass is Antarctica. So it, it's a huge continent. Um, you know, the coldest place on Earth by quite some margin. Driest place on Earth, less precipitation in Africa. It's a desert technically. Windiest place on Earth. You know, highest ever wind speeds have been recorded there. Uh, what else? Highest altitude above sea level. So it's a, it's a sort of land of extremes. And the numbers are, are almost impossible to comprehend. The number that absolutely blows me away is is the amount of gla- you know, freshwater glacial ice in Antarctica, which is 26.5 million gigatons. And I remember thinking about this a few years ago, thinking, well, how many human beings are alive right now? And at that point, you know, I looked it up, 7.8, 7.9 billion. I'm assuming we're probably a few more on that now. What if I divide up all that ice in Antarctica you know, by, by humans? What's our individual allocation just as a way of personally visualizing this and and the answer is three million tons of ice for every single human being alive on the planet right now now i'm i'm an ice specialist and i i I, you know in a way i i don't know what three million tons looks like i i mentioned this conundrum on a a zoom call a couple of years ago during lockdown and some said that's easy that's that's about 40 aircraft carriers in terms of displacement so the, the 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 scale of this place and therefore the the consequence of what appears to be happening and and, and the change that appears to be accelerating is is profound and my one of my real worries is that the numbers are so so large that it it sort of becomes abstract and at a time and a, a chapter in history when 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 most people have problems right in front of their face and and, and therefore this frozen place at the bottom of the world becomes this sort of abstract problem that surely someone else is going to fix. You are listening to Doomsday Watch, so we do have to talk about Antarctica's Doomsday Glacier. We've said that Antarctica is a landmass, but it is, under all that ice, really a set of islands joined by huge ice sheets. And one of these, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, is at severe risk from the climate crisis. So the Thwaites Glacier, which, as you say, is uh, also sometimes known as the Doomsday Glacier, is one of the glaciers that's critical to the stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Currently, the two areas of the polar regions in terms of the ice that we're most concerned about are the Greenland ice sheet 
and the West Antarctic ice sheet. And we know from the, you know, the world has in the distant, distant, distant past been in warmer periods than today. And we know that in those warmer periods, those ice sheets were not intact. And all that water that's locked up in that ice was, instead of being in the ice, was in the oceans. And the oceans were many, many meters higher in terms of sea level than they are today. Um, And that whole West Antarctic ice sheet holds within it the equivalent of about three meters of sea level rise globally. Now, we really don't have a good understanding of how long it would take for that full three meters um, to be to be realized. It would probably take centuries to see that full um, three meters, but we don't really know. Northeastern part of the Atlantic. Some scientists are concerned about the changes they're seeing in these ocean currents that regulate much of Europe's temperate weather. If these systems did collapse, much of the climate change we see now would look minor. I asked Emily if this throws into question the viability of actual countries. Yes, absolutely. So one of the areas where there's been a significant amount of research over the last few years and an increased understanding is interconnected risks associated with climate change and also how um, some of those risks are cascading. You get domino effects, essentially, a big climate-related weather event might increase the vulnerabilities in a particular region that would then have a knock-on effect and so forth. The implications potentially of migration are really significant. Uh, There are also implications both in in terms of the response to climate change and that potentially shifting geopolitics as well. We've seen, you know, with current energy crisis that we're seeing at the moment, which, uh, you know, has at its heart fossil fuel energy, we're seeing how that's playing out in terms of international geopolitics as well. And we're really just starting to fully understand those interconnections. Geography isn't normally something that changes in a time horizon that we can experience as individuals. So when powerful countries start to realise that a major change is happening right now, even some rather unexpected players seek to gain advantage. I think where climate change makes itself felt geopolitically is that as the polar regions have grown in salience, more and more countries are taking an active interest in in their fate. So one of the things you often hear in China, for example, is, you know, why is China interested in the polar regions? Simply put, if ice melts, sea levels rise, and that means coastal cities like Shanghai are potentially imperiled. And you're beginning to see more and more countries, Turkey being a good example, saying, actually, we've got every right to take a closer interest in these parts of the world. They're no longer geographically remote, as perhaps they once were thought to be, and they're not going to be sidelined in either the Arctic or the Antarctic. The interplay of geopolitics and the environment may be reaching a crucial moment, but this isn't a new concept. I spoke to the godmother of climate change security, Sherry Goodman, who has been working with US military leaders since the 1990s and is also credited with coming up with the phrase threat multiplier as she showed how environmental factors cannot be ignored, whatever the task. So 
I, I served in the U.S. Defense Department in the 1990s in what I call the first era of the military's environmental awakening. And at that time, the U.S. military and militaries around the world were coming to grips with complying with the first generation of environmental laws, most dealing with clean air and clean water, cleanup of hazardous waste and protecting endangered species. And they were coming out of World War II, uh, Korean War, Vietnam War, um, with the sense that the growing military industrial complex sort of freed them from complying with environmental laws to which the rest of their countries were subject. But in fact, that wasn't true. First, there was a period of resistance. But following that, and with the power of environmental laws, at least in the United States, to shut down military training at key bases for failure to comply with protecting, for example, the red cockaded woodpecker that lives in the in, uh, endangered longleaf pine at a key military base in North Carolina called Fort Bragg, the Army, it got environmental religion, so to speak. And you know, the great thing about military leaders is that they are open to new information. And they are also accustomed to having to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And when you start to think about it, it affects everything that militaries need to care about. So it's no surprise when you think about it that if the weather is becoming less predictable, military leaders would need to understand that because it affects everything from how we conduct a military operation to how we set our bases to ensure that they're protected from sea level rise and storm surge. And then more importantly, at a global level, when you see the accelerating instability caused by what I call the threat multipliers of climate change. Environmental factors are creating incredibly hazardous dynamics as the nature of extreme weather risk is that the threat is global. There are fragilities in natural systems the world over. Natural resources, when they become scarce, can be weaponized. We talk about weaponization. You know, we're very familiar now with Putin weaponizing uh, oil and gas resources against Europe. But we've also seen weaponization of water resources across the Middle East and Africa, regions historically already scarce in water, becoming even more so in Syria. That conflict was preceded by two periods of prolonged drought acting as a tipping point. Uh, and then if we go to another part of the world, take Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, Nicaragua to some extent, uh, those countries which were already among um, the poorest, most fragile, with, with the least capable governance in the region, but they've now, over the course of the last decade, been subject to a whipsaw of devastating hurricanes that have knocked out infrastructure and put communities um, in desperate, you know, sending uh, families kids alone even uh, migrating north for a better hope of survival. Uh, that combined with a pervasive coffee rust blight has just made much of the region unsupportable uh, at the local level. But we see many regions across the world that were already fragile to begin with, fragile in their governance, fragile in their infrastructure, 
and without much political cohesion, then just get whacked by the climate perils. And that is putting many, um, many regions at risk. The point about that old song, however tasteless a slavery reference might sound to the modern ear, is that naval power is the key to projecting hard power beyond our immediate borders. This is something that China has understood from Britain's history and which lies at the heart of its plans for expansion in the 21st century. Here's Bruce. We've seen the search for control over the sea lanes be the primary uh, battleground of geopolitical competition for actually for several centuries. It's just that during the Cold War, that receded. And because of nuclear weapons and intercontinental strike, uh, the, the issue of control over the sea lanes receded in strategic terms in the West and the Soviet worlds were divided economically. Post-Cold War era, we've reintegrated the global economy. There's only one global economy now. It's not split into blocks. But we're back into a world of geopolitical competition. And for China, China vividly remembers the historical pattern uh, by which the Royal Navy and its dominance of the sea lanes and its dominance of, of maritime power is able to penetrate China, penetrate Chinese sovereignty, help dismantle the Chinese empire. It has that memory very fresh in its strategic thinking and a, a core part of China's strategy is to push back American dominance of the high seas and ultimately to gain uh, a Chinese foothold on the high seas. And that process is turning the sea lanes back into a central zone of competition. This is important, and sometimes it gets missed with the focus on China's economic growth. I think we have to look at China's Belt and Road Initiative primarily as a way of avoiding the core dilemma that they have which is that they are hugely dependent on the flow of resources through critical waterways, the Straits of Malacca, the South China Sea, and then up into their major ports. And those are waterways that for the past several decades, the United States has dominated. And right now, the United States dominates all the major choke points flowing into uh, the South China Sea. That's a huge vulnerability for China. So China is pursuing two strategies simultaneously building out its naval capacity in what it calls the near seas, the East China Sea, the LLC, the Taiwan Strait, and the South China Sea to roll back U.S. dominance. It's made huge strides in, in that space. And at the same time, pursuing alternative routes through Burma into the Andaman Sea, uh, up through Russia into the Arctic to be able to flow resources into its economy and export goods out of its economy. So the search to escape their dependence on sea routes that the United States controls is, to my mind, the driving feature of, of Chinese grand strategy. Peaceful reunification of Taiwan is very, very unlikely. It is definitely a flashpoint. This brings us back to the South China Sea, a contested flashpoint of disputed sovereignties that we charted in our first series. In the intervening period, China's aggression towards Taiwan has only increased. So has America's firm line, spelled out by President Biden. The fact is that the United States is a Pacific power. 
We're going to remain a Pacific power. China has two very important reasons to retake Taiwan. It is an important part of Xi Jinping's search for legacy in the reconsolidation of pieces of former Chinese sovereignty. It's not limited to Taiwan. That also takes us to places like Nepal and Bhutan, but Taiwan is the lodestar there. But just as significantly, if China can take Taiwan, it creates for itself a naval base outside of the first island chain, a string of islands that enclose China behind a wall of American allies and security partners. It's been a long time since we've seen this concentration of naval firepower uh, in this small body of water, and the tensions are rising rapidly. Uh, Japan is implicated. Uh, the Philippines is on the other side of the Luzon Straits. Australia patrols those waters pretty regularly. Um, the British have deployed both their aircraft carriers and their uh, and naval destroyers into those waters. Canada, New Zealand, Spain, several others have, have sent ships there. Escaping that first island chain is a huge driver uh, for Chinese grand strategy. And for both of those reasons, uh, the United States is heavily inclined to defend uh, Taiwan to, to stop a Chinese takeover by military means. And what we're watching right now is both sides uh, build up their capability, build up their rhetorical posture, build up their diplomatic posture for that clash. That is a looming clash. Uh, it might take several years for it to occur, uh, but it might come faster because as both sides uh, increase the tempo of their preparations and their posturing, the risks of accident, of undue escalation, go up substantially. There are very few guardrails here. There are few diplomatic channels to de-escalate these tensions. Taiwan looms large. The end of the polar ice cap really feels like the moment when climate change changes everything. It might not be dry land, but effectively this has been part of the map of the world, a vast solid stretch of territory for all the time that humans have been in settled societies. All of history, basically. Yes, and, and really, it really is breathtaking because, you know, we're looking and thinking about parts of the world that have been reliably frozen for millennia. And what we're seeing before our very eyes, if you will, is profound state change. So can we afford to continue ignoring the Arctic? Whatever the outcome in Ukraine, Russia will gain huge power and resources from this catastrophic change. Well, I think what's happened is that with the, the kind of macro background of a, a looming US-China challenge, it's creating space for every other actor that wants to, to seek to improve its position. The Indians, the Turks, the Germans, the Japanese are trying to figure out how they operate in this new landscape. With Germany, obviously what's been driving that in the short term is its response to Ukraine. But it also understands that it has to reposition itself in this wider landscape of a, a looming clash between the United States and China. Uh, it's what gave... Russia the space for its misadventure in Ukraine. But that's done nothing to weaken its sea-based capability. Russia still has arguably the second most powerful navy in the world, uh, sort of neck and neck with China these days. Um, the second most powerful submarine fleet, some very important missile launch capability from its submarines. 
and we don't know this for sure, but probably the world's largest nuclear weapon, which is submarine-based. Um, and it can still use those capabilities to pose a significant threat to the United States uh, and to Europe. Land power in, in Ukraine doesn't change that. And political strains and turmoil at home probably increase the likelihood of it. So I don't think we've seen the last of Mr. Putin yet by any means. So how are we going to keep a lid on this? Sherry Goodman, who addressed the NATO summit of summer 2022, believes we have exactly the tools we need to stand up to multipolar threats. It's very important to recognize that the current Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, was Norway's climate minister before he became Secretary General, and he's had a long-term commitment to positioning NATO as a, as a climate leader. And indeed, NATO, a year ago, issued its first uh, climate security action plan where it defined the climate security threats that NATO faces, building upon much of the work uh, that myself and others have done through the International Military Council on Climate and Security. So the first task for NATO uh, in in climate action, um, in addition to understanding it as a threat multiplier, is to begin to set up a system for managing greenhouse gas emissions and energy use. And NATO has a long history of creating these standards, NATO standards, and enabling forces to become interoperable uh, so that they can work together. So this is just another dimension of that. So I think all these steps are very important uh, and very promising. And NATO, of course, will also work with EU defense forces and with other civil society groups because this is something that has to be done uh, together with others and with industry as well. Perhaps the answer to this question of how to support the natural world in our own interests lies in the polar regions themselves. Out on the ice fields of Antarctica, Ben Saunders learned something about global cooperation. Antarctica is so, so vast. One of the perennial challenges for me these days is is trying to explain what this place feels like because my vocabulary feels stunted you know with words like big cold you know don't 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 come close and it's again the the scale is is absolutely mind-blowing there is one unique aspect to antarctica that that um that i think also isn't well understood and that to me is incredibly inspiring especially now which is which is the way that it is managed and looked after by human beings um nobody owns antarctica you know it's governed by this international treaty written up in the 1950s at the height of the cold war um and essentially sets this place aside for um for science and and for for peace Uh, and and there is no commercial exploitation around it's the only continent that's never had a war um it's it's managed compared to pretty much everywhere else on the planet, managed remarkably well, you know, sort of collectively by humanity. It's the largest nature reserve on the on the planet. To me, one of the magical things about Antarctica is, is if you are lucky enough to, to arrive there one day um, on an aircraft or an icebreaker, um, you'll find that there are no border controls because it, it, it doesn't, nobody owns it, no claim to sovereignty. So your, your passport, your nationality, just it becomes irrelevant. If you are there with other human beings, the only thing that matters, yeah, and, and this happens very quickly because this is a, a, a climate that is not 
specifically conducive to, to human existence, let alone trying to get anything done. Very quickly, you are sort of forced to trust um, and collaborate with you know, your fellow human beings. So all the stuff we waste so much time and energy and blood, you know, bickering about you know, borders and nationality, immigrants, you know, doesn't matter down there. It just becomes utterly irrelevant. One of the things we have heard about in this episode is the positioning of great powers in a region where they don't choose to show their hand, operating sometimes under the radar and over the horizon. And this is not an accident. We are living in a new golden era of clandestine ops and active measures carried out by the world's increasingly audacious intelligence agencies. Join us next time for Doomsday Watch, Covert Ops and Secret Wars. Espionage in terms of agent handling is all about control. Uh, a remote controlled gun that weighed one ton. Can't think of any job that would be more dangerous right now in the intelligence world than that. There is a tension between democracy and, and secrecy. Citizens in a democracy need to better understand what's going on. It's going on in our name. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.